Our scripture verse is Genesis chapter 6, 1 through 8. But as I've been saying, as we've looked at these uh, doctrines from Scripture and through the lens of the canons of Dort, uh, it's important that we understand that really there's not simply just one proof text that we can go to to explain uh, these things, but these teachings, these doctrines permeate all of Scripture and various aspects of these doctrines come through with various Scriptures. So Genesis 6 uh, works as well as uh, any of them to show a part of what we mean when we speak of total depravity or total inability. So following uh, the curse of Genesis 3, uh, a few hundreds of years have passed, and in Genesis 6 we hear this. When men began to increase in number on the earth, and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were beautiful, and they married any of them they chose. And the Lord said, My spirit will not contend with man forever, for he is mortal. His days will be a hundred and twenty years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterward, when the sons of God went to the daughters of men and had children by them. They were the heroes of old, men of renown. The Lord saw how great man's wickedness on the earth had become, and that every inclination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil all the time. The Lord was grieved that he had made man on the earth, and his heart was filled with pain. So the Lord said, I will wipe mankind whom I have created from the face of the earth, men and animals and creatures that move along the ground, and birds of the air, for I am grieved that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Many other passages could be chosen. In fact, I printed off a list of scriptures that... Speak of total depravity. It's 10 pages long. And it deals with questions like, is man basically good or basically evil? All men, are there any exceptions? Are people good deep down? Are men totally depraved? Is every faculty of the person corrupted? Can men change themselves or still do good when they want to? Are men at least born pure? What about the tabula rasa or the blank slate? What is the natural disposition of man toward God? What's man's relationship to God? Can man then do anything to please God? Are men at least seeking God? Can the natural man comprehend the gospel or come to saving knowledge of God on his own? Can men of themselves accept God's gift of salvation? Do men choose God or come to Him on their own? Or who supplies faith, belief, repentance? Can men do anything to help themselves? And what becomes of our boasting? So... These are good questions, and hopefully we will address a number of them tonight as we look at the canons of Dort's third head of doctrine, total depravity. And we'll probably reference the canons, so if you want to go into the back of your um, Psalter hymnals to page 102 in the back. You'll see the third and fourth heads of doctrine. The third and fourth heads of doctrine are considered together in the canons of Dorp. That is the total depravity, the T of tulip, and the irresistible grace. Of course, I've said before, in the canons of Dort, it's not tulip, it's ultip. So we've looked at uh, we've looked at um, wow, I just totally blanked. Unconditional election. 
And we've looked at limited atonement. And today we're looking at total depravity. So I was speaking to our uh, great and wonderful librarian earlier, and I said, it's interesting to me that I feel like in the canons of Dort, they go, God the Father, creed and eternity past, God the Son sent to accomplish salvation, then mankind. Where, so it's from God to man. But normally when we consider uh, tulip or the doctrines of grace, we go from man to God. Either way is okay, but the idea is um, what, what's going on in the canons of Dort now is this. We've seen that God has unconditionally elected us, not by anything done or based in us, not by unforeseen faith, not by our ability to accomplish anything on our own behalf. God has done that, unconditional election, eternity past. Therefore, Christ must come and make atonement for us, not to only make salvation possible, but to actually accomplish salvation for us. And then the question is, well, why exactly does this need to happen? Why do we need to be unconditionally elected? Why does Christ need to die? Well, because of the condition of mankind that we find ourselves in. Because, as Genesis 6 tells us, that the Lord saw how great man's wickedness on the earth had become. That every inclination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil all the time. So, this is the way uh, I would illustrate it. And hopefully this will help us as we look at this. If I took a vulture and a bunny rabbit, all right, and I put in a room carrots and rotten, stinking meat, and I put the vulture in there, and I told the vulture, now carrots are good for you. They give you good eyesight, and they help you see, so eat the carrots, and then I left the room and shut the door behind me. What do you think the vulture is going to eat? The carrots or the rotten, stinking meat? Now on the flip side, if I took a bunny and placed the bunny in the room and I said, rotten meat is bad for you, carrots are good for you. And I left, what do you think the bunny is going to eat? It's going to eat the carrots. And, and what am I trying to get here? Well, when we think of this picture, it makes sense to us that animals would eat what is in accord with their nature. Vultures eat rotten, stinking meat, roadkill. Bunnies eat carrots. Because their natures are such that they eat what is in accord with their nature. So what's at stake in discussing the doctrine of total depravity is this very question. What connection exactly does sin have with our nature. What has the Genesis 3 curse done to our nature? And it was the writers of the Holy Scriptures and the authors of the Canons of Dort who argued that the fallen condition of man has caused an altered nature, one that desires rotten meat over carrots. Total depravity does not mean that we are sinful as we could be, but there is no part of us that has not been affected by sin. Or as Moses said it, that every inclination of the thoughts of his heart only evil all the time. Therefore, what makes unconditional election and particular redemption necessary is the complete inability of man in his cursed position to do anything to redeem himself. Man is found because of his fall 
to be with a distorted nature, one that is turned always toward what he most desires, and what he most desires is rotten meat, not carrots. Therefore, God must elect, not based on anything God good found in us, not even on foreseen faith, since there's nothing good found in us. God must send his son to die for our sins and to purchase our salvation from start to finish, total depravity. Often it can be something that's not very fun to talk about. In fact, if you think of the Heidelberg Catechism, what does it spend like maybe three Lord's Days on sin before we get into salvation? Uh, it seems like something that's negative to focus upon. But it's entirely necessary since it is the stage on which God's most amazing grace is displayed. For the gospel does not take sick people and give them medicine. Sick people, or the gospel takes dead people and brings them to life. Or to say it another way, if rotten meat is sin and the carrot is the good news of salvation in Christ... God in his grace through the perfect work of Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit takes vultures, fallen men, like you and I, and turns us into rabbits or those who see the goodness of the gospel. God changes our natures so that what we most desire is not sin, but the grace of God in Jesus Christ. So let's look at this, our theme tonight. is we are slaves to sin and entirely unable to overcome our own rebellion. That does not look like how you spell rebellion. But God. I feel like that's the most important part right here. And uh, it's kind of hard to talk about total depravity and not include that. For instance, this would be my sermon. You guys all are a bunch of sinners and you have no hope. Go with God. See you later. So we're going to look at this in three points that correlate with the canons and I think a very helpful way. First is the origin of our depravity. Second is the nature. And I feel like this is probably going to be the crux of the conversation because this is where all the misunderstandings happen, okay? And then third is the solution. The solution. So the origin of our depravity, the nature of our depravity, and then the solution of our depravity. So let's look at that first point, the origin. This is so crucial and it's something that is so forgotten in our day and age. Look at Article 1 and 2 of the Canons of Dort. And this is what it says. Man was originally formed after the image of God. So the first thing that we need to understand is we are image of God. That is what we were created to be. 
His understanding was adorned with a true and saving knowledge of his creator. And of spiritual things, his heart and will were upright, all his affections pure, and the whole man was holy. So what that meant was that image of God means holy, upright, free. And this is key. Because most of our modern concepts, most of the modern views about religion, about God, about the ability of man to somehow pull himself up by his bootstraps and, and, and grasp upon God's salvation that he has provided in Jesus Christ is something that some, uh, kind of circles around this concept of free will. Truly free will. And besides the fact that the only person who has true free will is God, the only other human besides Jesus Christ who was free as most modern people consider was Adam. He was. His heart and will were upright. All his affections pure. The whole man holy. But revolting from God by the instigation of the devil and by his own free will, says right there, he forfeited these excellent gifts and in the place thereof became involved in blindness of mind, horrible darkness, vanity, and perverseness of judgment, became wicked, rebellious, and obdurate in heart and will and impure in his affections, so much so that three chapters later the whole world is so evil that God needs to destroy it. What I'm saying here is something that's key for us to understand. The condition we find ourselves in is because Adam is our representative, our perfect representative, freely chose to rebel. He freely chose to rebel. And because of that, the image of God that we have is not destroyed. But it's distorted, twisted, okay? And that's why it says in Article 2, Man after the fall begat children in his own likeness. A corrupt stock produced a corrupt offspring. Hence all the posterity of Adam, all of Adam's descendants, Christ only accepted, have derived corruption from their original parent, not by imitation, as the Pelagians of old asserted, but by the propagation of a vicious nature in consequence of the just judgment of God. So that curse of Genesis 3 has been carried on, and it's a bit of a mysterious way. We don't really know necessarily particularly how this happens, but it is carried on down through generations, this distorted corrupt idea. And they're kind of combating this idea that um, it's by imitation, so by example. And you know what? I was thinking about this recently because oftentimes um, at our house, because we have older children and younger children, we will say things uh, inappropriately, I think, oftentimes 
like when our, one of our younger children starts screaming or mocking somebody, we go, well, who do you think they learned that from? To our older children. You know what I'm talking about, right? Well, who do you think they learned that from? And so as I was studying this today, I thought to myself, wow, I'm a Pelagian. Because I think that my younger children get it by imitation. But that is not the case. They get it because they're sinners. By nature. Not because they see somebody else do it. Ultimately. Right? And this is key because... The Pelagians had a real difficulty with the concept of death. Death is a hard thing to wrestle with. It truly is. If you think that uh, people are generally good. Because God told them, the day you eat of it, you shall surely die. And in Romans, we're told the wages of sin is death. In Romans 5, we're told sin came through one man, therefore death came to all. Speaking of Adam. So, back in the 4th century, when Augustine and Pelagius were having this debate, Augustine was saying, well, if sin is not something that's a reality, a curse, rather than something that we just learn by imitation, why do infants die? Because they are blank slate. They haven't done anything wrong or bad or anything like that, but infants die. I mean, that's a hard conversation. It truly is. It's difficult. But what's being said there, the truth that's being proclaimed there, is that what has happened in Genesis 3, the fall of mankind, has brought about a new reality concerning our nature in such a way that we are now separated from God and we are destined for death and wrath. The way I uh, would think about it is like this. The other day, or yesterday, I always say the other day even if it was yesterday, I bought my wife uh, a few carnations for Mother's Day. I'm going to draw a horrible-looking vase and some flowers. And uh, I always think flowers are such a silly gift because they're chopped off, and then you give them to somebody, and they're just going to eventually die, right? So when we think of the wages of sin being death, we should think of it like this. Like a flower. Once the flower is uprooted, placed in a vase, even with that beautiful preservation powder stuff that they give to you, I don't even know what that stuff is, nutrients of some sort, given water, it may look beautiful and wonderful for a time. But because it has been ripped apart from its life-giving source, it will eventually die. That's a curse. That's where it comes from. That's why we're the way we are. Because our parents, Adam and Eve, freely rebelled against God in the garden. 
And like flowers who have been cut off from their source of life, we as image bearers of God who have been cut off from the very life-giving presence of God will surely die if there is no intervention, if there is no grace given. So let's talk a little bit more about the nature of this fall, the nature of this curse. Article 3, 4, and 5 speak to this. Therefore, all men are conceived in sin and are by nature children of wrath, incapable of saving good, prone to evil, dead in sin, and in bondage thereto. And without the regenerating grace of the Holy Spirit, they are neither able nor willing to return to God to reform the depravity of their nature or to dispose themselves to reformation. I think the key words here are neither able nor willing. And I feel that the best way to describe this is to use language from the scriptures concerning the heart. The heart and the scriptures are the very core of our person. They are described in the Proverbs as the place from which all things of life flow out of. Therefore, it's important to guard it, right? And our heart has become corrupted. The scriptures speak of that. You know, you hear parents, some parents these days, just trust your heart. And every time I hear that, I think, Jeremiah says the heart is desperately wicked. Don't trust your heart. (laughs) Scriptures say, lean not on your own understanding. Trust in God. He will make your paths straight. So the heart has become corrupted. And Augustine called this an inversion because where the heart was always to be concerned for others and for God, as in love God, love neighbor, now it's turned inwardly. And we think only of our own glory, our own satisfaction, our own pleasure, Therefore, if the heart is from which all things of life flow out of, then it makes sense that Jesus would say that it is the heart which makes man evil. From from the heart, all things, all evil things flow. And the heart is what flows to the will. So here's what I would say. If you want to say that we have a free will, you can do so in a, in a very real sense without confusing those terms because we are still free to make choices, are we not? I can have Coke. I can have Pepsi. prefer Dr. Pepper. I can come to evening church or not. I can do any number of things. I have the freedom of choice, right? But the question is, what is it that I choose? What is it that I most want to choose or am willing to choose? And what we're being taught here is the will chooses what it wants most in its fallen condition, and that is sin. I choose sin. And I choose it, and I choose it, and I choose it, and I choose it. Of course, then you may ask, 
well, don't some people who aren't Christians, unbelievers, do good? Don't they do good? Aren't there some people who, who are philanthropists, who give thousands of dollars, millions of dollars to this cause or that cause? What are we to think about those who do good? I mean, are they totally depraved? Even though so much of what they do corresponds to God's will, God's law, even though they're not believers, they're so loving, they're so kind, how can you say that they're totally depraved? Well, Article 4 of the Canons of Dort speaks to that. It says, They remain, however, in man since the fall, the glimmerings of natural light, whereby he retains some knowledge of good, of natural things, and of the difference between good and evil, and shows some regard for virtue and for good outward behavior. But so far is this light of nature from being sufficient to bring him to a saving knowledge of God, to true conversion, that he's incapable of using it aright, even in things natural and civil. And further, this light, such as it is, man in various ways renders wholly polluted and hinders in unrighteousness by doing which he becomes inexcusable before God. Some difficult, complicated language there, but really what they're bringing forth here is the same thing that Paul brings forth in Romans 1 and 2. That all people know that God exists by nature of the light that they have. And that the Gentiles who do not know God still know the law of God for it's written on their hearts and they can discern between right and wrong. That there is something that we call common grace. By which people are given the ability to do what is outwardly in correspondence with God's character. Which provides a place in which the gospel can go forth, right? Which the gospel can be proclaimed. But what is being said here is the same thing that Paul says. All this accomplishes is that they are without excuse for the sin that they have against God. Well, what do you mean, sin? Well, because we're told in Romans chapter 14 something that's very profound. We're told everything that's not done in faith... is sin. Everything not done in faith is sin, or Hebrews, the writer of the Hebrews could say, uh, without faith, it's impossible to please God. But what does that mean? It's the same thing we mean when we say our righteousness is like filthy rags. That is that outwardly we could do something that's in correspondence with God's will and God's law, but if inwardly we still have this corrupted heart that's neither able nor willing to please God. It is sin, and it is ugly, it is corrupted, it is rotten to the core. And John Piper uses an example like this. Let's say you have a son, and he asks to use your car to take his friends to the ball game that night. And you say to him, you can use my car, but before you can do that, you have to wash it. And let's say the son gets upset because you're saying, you're making him wash the car and he doesn't want to wash the car and he wants to do something else. So he walks out of that conversation, stomping his feet, 
and then you don't think anything of it. Later on in the day, you go outside, you see your son washing the car. He's got the sponge, he's got the, he's got the, the hose, he's washing down, he gives you a look like, like dish on his face. Fine, I'll wash the car, you know. The question is, is the son doing what the father asked him? Of course he is. Outwardly, he is being obedient to his father's words, but not because his father asked him, not in grateful service to his father. Rather, he wants to bring his friends to the game, and the only way he can bring his friends to the game is if he does what his dad asked him, so he's going to go ahead and do what his dad asked him, even though he doesn't want to. So can we say washing the car is good? Yes, outwardly, it's good. But is it truly good if it's not done in faith? Not sin. Therefore, everything done by unbelievers who are totally depraved in their nature, who have a heart that's bent inwards towards their own glory towards their own will, towards their own desires, cannot do what pleases God. For what pleases God must be done in faith. It must not only have outward conformity, but inward conformity. Well, this is, looks pretty bleak, though, doesn't it? I mean... What's going to happen? Well, there's a reason why the third and fourth head of doctrine and the canons of Dort are dealt with together because the solution to the total depravity of mankind is the but God. If you read Ephesians 2, it's such a beautiful passage. It's so deep. It talks about our nature as children of wrath, bent towards all evil. And then it says, but God. But God, being rich in mercy. The solution to our total depravity is seen in Article 6 as it begins to turn towards what is called irresistible grace. Article 5 told us that the law of God only increases our um, guilt. It reveals the greatness of our sin and convinces us that there's no remedy and no strength. It does not give us strength to overcome it, but it leaves the transgressor under the curse. Therefore, the law cannot bring us to salvation, nor can the general light of nature spoken of in Article 4 and Article 6 says, What therefore neither the light of nature nor the law could do, that God performs by the operation of the Holy Spirit through the word or ministry of reconciliation, which is the glad tidings concerning the Messiah, by means whereof it has pleased God to save such as believe as well under the Old as under the New Testament. So the solution is the power of the Holy Spirit by the means of the Word. 
the word of Christ. The proclamation of what they call, I find this so great, the glad tidings concerning the Messiah. If our condition is such that we are unable and unwilling to avail ourselves of the salvation that God has offered, then what must be the truth is that prior to believing, prior to faith, must be the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit. Therefore, do we find it surprising in John 3 that Christ would say such a thing? That he would say that whoever is to believe must be born again, born from above, born of the Holy Spirit. Faith does not come before the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit. Rather, the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit, the giving of new birth and new life, comes before we can place faith. Because the Holy Scriptures are clear, we are unable, we are unwilling because of our new and corrupted and cursed nature to do what is pleasing to God. And may I ask you, is faith, repentance, pleasing to God? If in Romans 8, Paul can say, the mind that is set on the flesh cannot please God. In 1 Corinthians chapter 2, when Paul says, the, the natural mind cannot understand, cannot interpret the mind of the Spirit for it's only spiritually discerned, can we see how faith is a gift, repentance a gift, because what comes prior to that is the electing grace of God granted to us in the redemptive work of Jesus Christ being given to us and worked in us in time and history by the Holy Spirit. Well, what should this do for us? I can tell you one thing that it does. It's a humbling reality. To truly grasp and understand the condition that we found ourselves in because of the fall. It's humbling because it allows us to proclaim without a doubt that all that we have is of God. It's a gift. Salvation from start to finish, it's a gift. It's not something we deserve. And it sure isn't something we've earned. If we sit here today and we look upon Christ and we say, Christ how wonderful your salvation is, how beautiful your, your cross is. Rather than foaming at the mouth saying, how foolish is the cross, how silly is the Christ, we have only one person to thank for that. And it's the but God. 
The solution to our depravity is the amazing grace of God found in the eternal election that we have received, not because of anything in us. The eternal redemption that we have received in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, which has been applied to us by the Holy Spirit that we may come to believe. That we may come to hate our sin. That that total depravity that we had may be turned outward so that we truly do desire what is pleasing to God. And to truly understand without a doubt that that in itself is a miracle. It's a wonder and it's a spiritual work. And to praise God. To praise Him. For the salvation that we have. This understanding of total depravity takes salvation from simply a logical choice that someone makes to a wonderful work of the triune God. Those are the options you have. And I find this one appealing not just because the scriptures say it, not just because the canons of Dort say it, which those are the main reasons the scripture says it, because it shows how wonderful and amazing our God is. Amen. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for these words. Thank you that you have not left us in our depravity. You've come to us in your Son, and you have granted us new life by your Spirit. You've been merciful to us. You have redeemed us. You have saved us from start to finish. And we praise you and we praise Christ who is the author and the perfecter of our faith, the Alpha and the Omega of our salvation. We pray, Lord, that we would never lose sight of how amazing and wonderful your grace is. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.